Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and welcome. My name is Tan Huang. I am currently serving as the program director for the Endocrine Fellowship Program at Gualtry National Military Medical Center. I am an associate professor in medicine and director of the Endocrine Division, Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. And I will be your moderator for this podcast brought to you by the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology. And today it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Angela Long, who will join me for this podcast. Dr. Long is an associate professor of medicine at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and an endocrinologist at the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. Dr. Long, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And as we know, the hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism are very common endocrine disorder. I probably see these patients with these diagnoses every day. So today we should go over some common questions that clinicians may have. So let's start with some questions for you. My first question for you, can you please go over how to diagnose hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism and whom to screen? Okay, so how to diagnose hypo and hyperthyroidism and whom to screen? So this is a bread and butter question that us as endocrinologists face, gosh, almost every single day. And not only endocrinologists, but those in primary care for sure. So it's important to recognize and just review that hypo and hyperthyroidism are biochemical diagnoses, right? So which rely on a series of thyroid function tests obtained from the serum. So hypothyroidism is underactive thyroid defined by an elevated serum TSH with or without decreased peripheral thyroid hormone levels. And hyperthyroidism is the opposite, right? So it's suppressed serum TSH levels with or without increased peripheral thyroid hormones, T3 and T4. Whenever I see a patient with suspected thyroid dysfunction, sometimes, well, actually, from an endocrinologist, that's cheating because we usually get the referral already from an established diagnosis from the primary care doctor. But it's important to also just confirm and ask about relevant family history, any sort of risk factors that might put them at increased probability for having hypo or hyperthyroidism. And when we talk about screening, we'll talk about that. And it's important when we talk about hypo and hyperthyroidism, what the most common etiologies are of these conditions. So for hypothyroidism in the United States, it's Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease, which increases the risk for having an underactive thyroid gland. But worldwide, it's actually iodine deficiency, a micronutrient deficiency that is still very rampant in many areas of the world. In hyperthyroidism, the answer is still the same for both the United States as well as abroad. It is Graves' disease, so an autoimmune disease stimulating the thyroid gland. So when we talk about and think about who to screen for who might have hypo or hyperthyroidism, and by the way, what are the prevalences of these conditions? So hypothyroidism is much more common in all 
different forms, whether or not it's overt or subclinical hypothyroidism, as much as 10% of the population. And then hyperthyroidism is much more rare, like at most one or 2%. So we have to have an index of suspicion based on prevalence. But we do have some guidelines from the major medical societies that help us decide who might be a candidate for screening for hypo or hyperthyroidism. And so the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force says that there's insufficient evidence for or against screening. These were their guidelines in 2015, and they have not been updated since. I believe the ACP says to screen symptomatic women age 50 years and over, but it's a question. We'll talk about what is symptomatic women. Symptomatic for hypo or hyperthyroidism could be anything. Could be fatigue, weight gain, weight loss, constipation, loose stool, skin changes, hair changes. Almost everybody has one or more of these symptoms. The AAFP family physician group says to screen everyone over the age of 60 years. So a little bit of a higher threshold. And then in contrast, the American Thyroid Association says to screen everybody starting at a much younger age, 35 years and older, and also at a regular interval every five years. So a much lower threshold for looking. And then ACE, the American Association of Clinical Necrologists, which is sponsoring this podcast, says to screen older patients. And really, they don't define in their guidelines who is older not a specific age cutoff, but they do advocate in screening more in women. So I hope that's a little bit of a good introduction about hypo and hyperthyroidism who to screen. Right. We see a lot of patients that was like non-specific symptoms. Yeah. I will address those questions later. My next question is, can you please discuss the meaning of the thyroid function test results, including the antibody titers and possible interferences? Well, the latter question is a little bit complicated, so let me see if I can distill that. So serum thyroid function tests, as we you know, already established, these are the cornerstone of, of the diagnosis of hypo and hyperthyroidism. So the best screening test is a serum TSH. And the reason for that is because there's a physiologic logarithmic to linear relationship between serum TSH to the peripheral thyroid hormone levels, so let's say free T4, such that one would expect to see a much more rapidly abnormal serum TSH way before or the free T4 or the T3 becomes abnormal. So small, small changes in the peripheral thyroid hormone are amplified by large exponential changes in this TSH. So the TSH becomes a very good and effective and cheap, by the way, screening test. And so when that is abnormal, then that's when we should confirm with the peripheral thyroid hormone levels. Which peripheral thyroid hormone levels would we obtain? It's a little bit different based on whether or not you're suspecting hypo or hyperthyroidism. So hypothyroidism, when the TSH is elevated, the best best next test is a free T4 level in the blood. And so if that is uh, abnormally low, below the reference range, we call that overt hypothyroidism and a clear indication to treat with thyroid hormone replacement. When the free T4 level remains within the normal range, we call that subclinical hypothyroidism. It has nothing to do really with symptoms, even though the word clinical is in the name of subclinical hypothyroidism, but it's sort of a more mild form of the biochemical disease. 
And then in hyperthyroidism, the next best test really is I like a total T3. It's the active thyroid hormone. So in Graves' disease, which we said is the most common cause of hyperthyroidism worldwide, we can usually see a very robust elevation of the total T3 in comparison to the total T4. So it becomes a really nice test to see if it's abnormal and confirm your suspicion of the disease. Supportive tests would be the antibodies, right? So in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is the most common cause of hypothyroidism in the U.S., we would expect to see an elevated thyroid autoantibody titer, and the most common being ordered is TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibody, but we can also order thyroglobulin antibody. Both of these antibodies are positive in about 15% of the normal population, and they do confer an increased risk, about a doubling risk for getting hypothyroidism in the future. For Graves' disease, we can confirm this diagnosis with the stimulating hormone. So that would be either a TRAB or a TSI, thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin, which doesn't necessarily have to be positive in all cases of Graves, but usually is. And so when, Tan, you were asking about thyroid antibody interferences, when sort of we're depending on the reliability of these tests, what if the clinical picture, the scenario that you're suspecting, let's say a person looks clinically hyperthyroid, but their tests aren't confirming uh, biochemical hyperthyroidism, what might this situation be? Well, all of the amino assays that are used to run an assay, the thyroid function tests, are based on the amino assay itself. So, of course, if anything can interfere with that, meaning the presence of antibodies other than to the thyroid, they can interfere with the reliability of the thyroid function tests. So, heterophile antibodies or antibodies to animal antibodies are present very rarely. I found a case study that reported that it was prevalent in about only 0.4% against TSH, and this is the largest prospective study in over 5,000 thyroid patients, and there's even less of a chance of interference against free T4 and free T3. But even so, if they are present in a body, they can remain detectable for up to a year, so they can sort of alter the reliability of the TFTs during that time frame. Biotin is often seen and heard about in the news and the lay press. This is a supplement that is a part of many any multivitamins or even a part of its own supplement used primarily for growth of hair and nail and to improve hair and skin health. So use of any sort of biotin around the same time that the TFTs are drawn have been shown to interfere with the accuracy of the levels. And most commonly it suppresses serum TSH and falsely elevates the free T4 and the free T3 levels. So sort of leading to inaccurate diagnosis of biochemical hyperthyroidism. If that's the case, we should counsel our patients to temporarily stop or hold anything that contains biotin for up to 48 hours, and that's enough to wash up the body and then repeat the TFTs. All right, good. Yeah, that is very informative for the patient. Because I've seen several cases of positive HAMA and heterophile antibody, and then when we correct for that would be blocker agent and then it resolved. Yeah. Very good. Next, let's just go over how to treat hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. 
Okay, well, hypothyroidism is just thyroid hormone replacement, right? So yeah. when I talk about this with my patients, I like to use the analogy of gas in the car, right? The car is not able to run and your car is going to feel like it's slow, right? If there's not enough gas. So we want to refill the gas tank both with giving thyroid hormone and we can get into the different types of thyroid hormone in a little bit, but we do want to replace. So it would be to start thyroid hormone replacement. And thyroid hormone replacement, the person had zero thyroid thyroid being produced from thyroid gland, we would recommend a full replacement dose, which would be about 1.6 micrograms per kilogram per day. But obviously, if a person has some sort of endogenous thyroid function remaining, and people should, at the very beginning of diagnosis, they don't need a full replacement dose. Hyperthyroidism is a little bit more tricky because there's three different modalities that are well-established. So antithyroidal medications, which are usually orally administered. Methimazole and propylthyuracil are the most common, and they're here in the United States. We can also do thyroid surgery to remove a thyroid gland, and that can be either total thyroidectomy if the problem is Graves' disease or diffuse infiltration of the entire thyroid gland to produce hyperthyroidism, or a toxic nodule, meaning a hyperactive thyroid nodule in itself. And so for that, perhaps a thyroid lobectomy might be sufficient. Thirdly, we can also use radioactive iodine treatment, so I-131 to either ablate the thyroid gland in Graves' disease or treat it just to remove that amount of hyperfunctional thyroid nodule that might be present. And so really the choice of which treatment really depends on the etiology of the hyperthyroidism. It's important to realize that for people with toxic nodules, so sort of one focused area of the thyroid gland that is overproducing the thyroid hormone, antithyroidal medications really will not be a permanent solution. That hot nodule will remain hot or overfunctional over the course of the person's life. So we really do need to move to definitive therapy after the person is made euthyroid. And then there's also considerations of whether or not the person has thyroid eye disease in which the use of radioactive iodine might be a bit of a contraindication because it can worsen the thyroid eye disease. And then if a person, if a woman is around the age of childbearing years, or there's a planned pregnancy, I would certainly not recommend radioactive iodine because one would have to abstain from pregnancy for the next six to 12 months following that treatment. Very good. Yeah, that's very. So we talk about how to diagnose hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, whom to screen, right? And then the meaning of uh, different thyroid function test results and how we treat hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Next question, can you please talk about the alternative means of thyroid hormone replacement? Because sometimes you have patients coming in like they didn't feel well with levothyroxine, the synthetic synthroid. They ask about desiccated thyroid extract or they want to try the T3 monotherapy. Can you discuss further about that? Sure. So yeah, I think that many of us as endocrinologists and in primary care, we have lots of patients who ask about the different types of thyroid hormone replacement. So levothyroxine is synthetic T4. It is by far the most common form of thyroid hormone replacement, but did you know it's not even the most common form of thyroid hormone replacement? It's the most commonly administered and prescribed medication in all of the United States. It beats 
really the blood pressure medications, the diabetes medications, the cholesterol, oh my goodness, all of those things. So it is a really, really commonly prescribed medication. It's been like that for several years. But it is synthetic T4, and T4 and both T3 are made by the natural thyroid gland, with T3 being the active thyroid hormone. So what we expect is when we are replacing the thyroid gland that's not being made in sufficient amounts with synthetic T4, we're waiting for the body to peripherally convert T4 into the active thyroid hormone T3. And we know that it does so from seminal studies published by my mentor, Dr. Lewis Braverman, way back in the 70s, I believe, proving the physiologic T4 to T3 conversion in, in peripheral tissues and muscles and others. And so, however, some patients might sometimes remark or note that there are quite a few excipients in the levothyroxine, things like starch and cellulose and talc and lactose and, you know, other sort of fillers, even colors. And so there becomes other choices of thyroid hormone replacement. T3, we can also prescribe synthetic T3, right, as another part of thyroid hormone replacement regimen. However, what I think is important to maybe stress to patients is that the European Thyroid Association really has come out with a nice statement outlining what really should be the ratio of synthetic T4 to synthetic T3 when we prescribe as two separate prescriptions. It should be really between a ratio of 1 to 13 or 1 to 20 or otherwise translated as only about 5 to 7% of T3 compared to 95 to 90%. 7% of T4 synthetically. And really that's based on studies that show that those are physiologic levels and likely not to confer a lot of excess risk. When we think about T3 as the active thyroid hormone, we think of excess risk to heart arrhythmias and bone loss like osteoporosis if given in great amounts over time. So then this leads us into the discussion of what desiccated thyroid extract is, or DTE. And DTE is literally extracts of thyroid from an animal, usually cow or pig or both. And in a pill, the ratio of T3 to T4 is about 1 to 4. So 25% T3, 75% T4. And by math, this is already much more than sort of what we think physiologically humans would require, right? Which is it most... I already said five to seven percent based on those ETA recommendations. So one would really never then the last question, Tom, that you were talking about is T3 monotherapy. This would really never be recommended for the long term because that would be 100 percent of the active thyroid hormone T3. However, there are a few cases when we're withdrawing patients in preparation for radioactive iodine for differentiated thyroid cancer in which we want the patient to be temporarily hypothyroid, quite hypothyroid with a TSH aim above 30. And so just for the few weeks, it would be fine to give T3 monotherapy and then withdraw that, but really not meant to be seen as permanent replacement. And then one last thing to just remember and stress to our patients is that any T3, so let's say synthetic T3 alone, or as an addition to T4 synthetically, or as a part of desiccated thyroid extract, any T3 does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So this would never be advised if a woman is contemplating pregnancy or is already pregnant because the fetal brain would be T3 deficient, thyroid hormone deficient, even though the mother would be biochemically euthyroid. And we know that thyroid hormone is really critical for neurodevelopment, brain formation early in life. 
Thank you, Dr. Long. So we talk about uh, hypothyroidism, hypothyroidism, how to diagnose, how to screen, how to treat them. The next question I have is, can you briefly discuss some of the continued challenging or more controversial aspects such as uh, biochemically euthyroid, but clinically hypothyroid, what to consider and not to consider when the TSH is normal? Sure. So thanks so much for the question. This is, I think, a common topic that we frequently encounter in the office as endocrinologists, but even in primary care. We're talking about the patient who has achieved a normal serum TSH, let's say with the use of levothyroxine, but they seem to have persistently hypothyroid symptoms, things like fatigue and weight gain and so forth. So Dr. Huang, you were the person that was the lead author in this study a couple of years ago, JCNM, that was, I think, one of the only crossover studies looking at levothyroxine monotherapy and the use of desiccated thyroid extract. People were randomized, just for our listeners, to, to recap, to both of these for, formulations of thyroid hormone and then crossed over. And at the end, it was interesting because there seemed to be no differences in any of the psychological or you know neurocognitive measures, anything that would be captured on questionnaires. But people seem to subjectively like the desiccated thyroid extract preparation more. Maybe it was tied to more weight loss or what have you, other sorts of reasons, but perhaps it, it led to the thinking that, you know, the use of our instruments to capture these hypothyroid symptoms may not be most reliable or capturing the right type of population. Right. So I think a lot of the controversy in this area would be designing better trials, larger trials that are going to be replicated, perhaps focusing in on specific hypothyroid symptoms and, and using either a desiccated thyroid extract or levothyroxine or both, similar to the trial that you had published on. So I don't have a good answer. Uh, a lot of the uncertainty in this area is just because we don't seem to have a lot of data. But what we do know is that oversuppression of serum TSH with use of too much thyroid hormone, whichever formulation, does lead to adverse outcomes over the long term, specifically cardiovascular and skeletal risks. So we certainly want to avoid that. Yeah, very good. I agree. Yeah. So, so usually I don't treat them if their TSH is completely normal. And we are almost running out of time. I have one last question for you. Can you please briefly discuss about the current studies to lower the thyroid antibodies with selenium or vitamin supplements such as antioxidants? Well, yes, this is another great question. I also frequently encounter this in my practice, and maybe you do as well. This is addressing the patient who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis leading to hypothyroidism. So the question is, how do we lower the antibody levels as a potential predictor for decreasing the risk of developing thyroid dysfunction in the future? So the only data really in this area is the use of selenium, and that's at a pretty high dose, 200 milligrams a day. Over the course of six months, it's able to statistically significantly lower the TPO and TG antibody levels in the blood, but it doesn't seem to really correlate with the progression of the disease, you know, risk of developing hypo or hyperthyroidism. The outlier is the use of selenium for mild thyroid eye disease, however, so that would certainly be indicated. But outside of that, it's hard to argue for the universal recommendation of, of selenium and other sorts of things that might have a, a role. It's interesting just to mention very briefly the use of a gluten-free diet. I think there's only one study of this. This was a Polish study published just 2019, but it's similar to the effect of selenium was able to also lower the serum TPO and TG antibody levels over the course of six months, but it also didn't seem to correlate with the 
risk of developing an abnormal serum TSH in, in those groups. So I think a lot of research still needs to be done in this area. Uh, we certainly don't understand what we can do as a part of lifestyle modification in order to impact the role of Hashimoto's thyroiditis as a predictor for progression to thyroid dysfunction. Okay, very good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I think we're running out of time now, but uh, I would like to thank you, Dr. Angela Lung, for joining us today. Thank you so much for taking the time to participate in today's podcast about hypo and hypothyroidism. And I hope that the audience have listened and enjoy our podcast. And thank you so much and see you next time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.